0: For those of you who have been here the past few weeks, you know that I've been continuing uh, my study into the book of Ephesians. Um, And so this morning I'm not going to do anything different. We're going to continue in that vein. Um, And we're up to part six. So if you could turn to the book of Ephesians and we will continue from um, chapter five. But just in case you haven't been here, um, I will introduce just what, a little bit about what the book of Ephesians is about again. book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul to the Gentile churches in and around Ephesus. Um, there were two types of people back then, according to the Jews. Uh, there were the Jews who followed the ways of God, and there were the Gentiles who were um, those that didn't follow the ways of God and uh, were destined for... Um, eternal death. Um, Paul was a Jew, a former Pharisee, who had been taught perfectly in all the laws and the commandments of God and the Pharisees. So he was coming from a perspective of knowing everything that there was to know about God and His ways. And now he's talking to people that don't know God's ways, that haven't been brought up in these ways, and giving them direction and guidance in that area. The book of Ephesians is split into two parts. The first three chapters talk about how God has made a way for the Gentiles to be saved along with the Jews, which was surprising to many Jews when God made that way. But um, the Lord confirmed it with signs and wonders. And, and it was obvious that God was in it. Um, and how awesome and incredible that fact is that we can be saved along with the the Jews who were God's and are God's chosen people. The last three chapters, which is where we're in at the moment, contain instruction and warning against the things of the world which come naturally to the Gentiles and encouraging in the things of God which don't come naturally to the Gentiles. So this epistle was written directly to Gentile churches so it contains instructions on things that mostly pertain to the Gentiles and the way that the Gentiles think and have been brought up. Not so much... Um, not so pertinent to the Jews because the Jews um, already knew most of these things and have been following them for most of their lives we see evidence of every single issue in people around us today who don't follow God in our last lesson we finished with Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 to 2 and we used those verses as a platform for partaking in communion the Lord's table I'll just read them out again, because it's going to flow, uh, continue in a theme. Visions 5.1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. What Jesus did for us on the cross is nothing short of incredible and life-changing. So now we'll continue with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. The Apostle Paul is now contrasting walking in love and the love and sacrifice of Jesus from verse 2 with things that are not loved in any way, shape or form in verse 3. Especially immorality. Ephesus was a very immoral society, even more so than other parts of the decadent and morally corrupt Roman Empire. So it was very important to teach these Gentile Ephesians how they ought to live in purity and holiness. Because immorality was a way of life in those times, and especially in Ephesus. God's Word and the way He wants us to live doesn't change with the way the current society sees things and acts themselves. That's evident from Paul um, bringing these things before the Ephesians Um, because uh, the the atmosphere in which they were raised isn't that much different from today. The word fornication is translated from the Greek word ponia, from which we get the word pornography, which refers to any sexual act outside the sanctity of marriage. Uncleanness is a more general reference to all lust and immoral behavior. But these two words are then linked with covetousness, which is translated from the Greek word pleonexia, which means ruthless greed. And I'll read out a bit from uh, a book called The Bride's Pearl, a commentary on, on Ephesians, authored by a UPC minister, Reverend Brian Kinsey. Ruthless Greed a desire that consumes people to possess what does not belong to them. Possessions give them a sense of conquest and achievement. They are consumed by a flaming passion for possessing the forbidden. And that would include covening um, uh, um, other men's wives as well. The link between the sins of fornication and covetousness reveals the similarity of motive that prompts such behavior. These sins should never be named among true Christians. Not only should Christians never participate in such evils, but they should also not allow them to become part of their conversation, their talk. Not partaking in these sins is something that should be commonplace for all born again believers, because the verse ends with, as becometh saints. Saints are called out that's the meaning of the word from wickedness and moral impurity and everything that this world stands for called out from this world and the things in this world, called out to walk in holiness and righteousness with God. So these are three sins that should never be once named among us, as the verse says. Ephesians chapter five and verse four Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor jesting which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Paul continues on with the same theme of moral impurity to list further sins in this area, but this time listing those that are spoken aloud rather than physical actions. Filthiness is translated from the Greek word eiskrates and refers to any type of conduct that would bring shame to a person's reputation. In the context, I believe that it is referring to talking openly about sexual acts. Just a little further on, uh, uh, further down in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 12 it says for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret foolish talking has a particular reference to vulgar suggestive or obscene speech jesting is not referring to simply telling jokes or saying things in jest we are made to have a sense of humor and god himself has a sense of humor the the old joke and bad joke goes um, that the the proof the only proof we need that God has a sense of humour is that He made you, um, but that there's kind of a point in that. In the context of this and the surrounding verses, it is talking about telling dirty jokes or speaking things with double meanings, where on the face of it the comment could be quite innocent, but has a deliberate different connotation, usually sexual in nature. Ephesians 5:5. 5, 5, For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This verse could be translated as, For this you know that no one who indulges in illicit sex, lust, or greed will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul has now turned the focus from the sins themselves to the consequences of the sins. All unrepented sins, no matter how big or small, will cause us to lose out on our salvation and heaven. But Paul felt particularly impressed to point out the consequences of these sins in particular. Why? Well, there are two reasons. Because these sins were, one, common temptations for the natural carnal person, and two, they were rife and accepted in the world and area in which they lived. What is acceptable and understood in this world has no effect on how God wants us to live and the world today is no different than the time of the Ephesians. Fornication and sleeping around are 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 accepted as normal in our society, and pushed as even being good by our society and the media. Lustfulness is considered as just being a part of life, and people are encouraged to fulfill all their desires, particularly through advertising. Greediness is pushed and held in high esteem by society and advertising you can never have enough is the mantra by which this world lives so people are encouraged to have it all to collect it all no matter whether you actually need it or not keeping up with the Joneses is a phrase that has been around for donkeys years and more but fits perfectly with the way that our world views things the Joneses are the next-door neighbors or the peer at work or someone that's around your social standing. The idea is that the Joneses are the average family and to be doing acceptably or even well you need to match them in every way. The Joneses might have three or four cars so the pressure is on also to have that same number of cars or even more to up the stakes a bit. The Joneses might have a pink elephant in the backyard so the pressure is on to match them or race them to show your own social status. Never mind the fact that you're a single person that only needs one car or could just take public transport. You've got to keep up or get left behind. And never mind the fact that pink elephants are clumsy, have no real purpose or usefulness in a suburban area, and destroy the resale value of your property. You've got to have it to keep up with everyone else. And never mind that the Joneses have just taken out a fourth mortgage on their property to finance their excessive spending. It's all about being seen to be average, whatever that might be, or even better, being seen to be wealthy to others. Why do you think that licensed merchandise has gone crazy over the last 20 years? It's not enough to have one toy that looks like a popular television or movie character. No, no, there's one standing, one sitting, one running, one lying down, one picking their nose, one in a different outfit, or you're lucky if it's just one in a different outfit, one in a different vehicle, and you need to get them all. You're encouraged to get them all if you're a true fan. And the newest one always seems to look cooler than all of the previous ones combined. This is the sort of thing that started a long time ago, but has really been ramped up to an excessive level in recent years. In the olden days, people might only need to buy one lamp, so they bought one lamp. But the marketers have discovered that if you make it in different colors or have several with slightly different designs that go nicely together as a set, then the pressure is on to buy them all. You only needed a lamp to light up the living room, but now you find yourself justifying buying them all. Well, that one would look good in the bedroom and that one in the dining room, and because they all go together, they w- it would add to the theme of the house, make it consistent throughout all of your house and out comes the credit card. There was a syndicated comic strip quite a few years ago called Calvin and Hobbes that had a piece of social commentary on this very subject. The kid, Calvin, walks into the living room where his parents are seated and says, Hey, Mum, I just saw an ad on television for a toy that I never knew existed, but that I desperately need. That one line sums up neatly the age we're living in people are encouraged to and even feel pressured to have the best and the most of whatever is on offer. So what Paul was so strongly warning the Ephesians about has the same and even more application to us today. Paul links greediness, covetousness with idolatry. There's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, which says, "'Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, "'fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection,' evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Also from the same uh, commentary book, The Bride's Pearl, um, I'll read this out. Any form of greed, whether for money, sex, or power, becomes a form of worship. With the object of greed displacing God as the Lord of one's life. God will not tolerate idol worship regardless of the form it may take, whether the idol is made by human hands or human desires. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Around this time, there were two false doctrines being spread that Paul is speaking against here. The first false idea was that the spiritual man is unaffected by the natural man meaning that you could sin as much as you want and still be spiritual and close to God and not have your spiritual growth hindered in any way. The second false idea twisted Paul's teachings on liberty from the law of Moses to also mean a liberty to sin as much as they wanted to as well. Paul spoke sharply against this second notion in Romans chapter 6, verses 1-2 to and also verse 15. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And in verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid, once again. Paul doesn't sugarcoat his words here. Those who disobey God's commandments, those who sin, come under the wrath of God. And if the sin is unrepented, the person continues under the wrath of God. God may be merciful to them in many areas of their lives but they will still be under the wrath of God. And the wrath of God has consequences in both this lifetime and the next, where they will not be able to enter into eternal life. Visions 5, verse 7, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Don't follow the crowd, even if everyone else is doing it, whether in the world or even in the church. There are many false doctrines out there, that appeal to human reasoning, or just simply appeal to the flesh. If a doctrine doesn't fall in line with the rest of the word of God, then it is a false doctrine, and sinful if you follow it, no matter how good it sounds. Because by following a false doctrine, you will come under the same wrath of God that they are under for their own disobedience. No matter how they might try to excuse themselves or make it sound good to other people. Don't be deceived by something that tickles your ears, that sounds good. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That is what we're looking for, life everlasting. And if we want that everlasting life, and we want that everlasting life, not the wrath of God to eternal damnation of our souls. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness. Not now ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We had a tongue interpretation this morning that talked about light and darkness. Light and darkness can never coexist together. One will always win out. However, it should be noted that only light has energy. It's worth thinking about. The actual definition, the entire nature of darkness is the absence of light. So if you bring light anywhere near darkness, the darkness disappears. There is no contest, no great battle, no breaking out the popcorn to see which one will win. When God's power is released, the forces of darkness are already defeated. But, If you take the light out or cover it up then darkness can reappear paul is calling on the ephesians to walk in the light in the truth and power of god because darkness or sin no longer has any hold on them it has been banished from their lives by the light and the power of god when we walk in the light when we allow the light and power of god Sorry. When we walk in the light, we allow the light and power of God into every part of our lives, our natures, our flesh, and our desires. And it dispels every bit, every single bit of darkness and sin. There is no longer any excuse to be a slave to our flesh or to our fleshly desires, because the old man of sin has died and the new man of righteousness has the power to live above each and every sin. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, we are not under the law, but under grace. If we're struggling with our fleshly desires or with sin itself, then there are some areas in our lives that we're holding out on from God. We've got areas of our lives that are covered so that the light of God can't shine into them and dispel the darkness. This might be deliberate unwillingness on our part to give that thing over to God. And as long as we do that, we're going to struggle with that part of our flesh. Or it might be something that we thought we had opened up to God's light, but there is still a part that we're holding back, keeping covered, even unknowingly. We need to allow the light of God to reach every part of our will, our desires, our motives, our purpose, our entire heart. When when people's actions and motives are evil, they try to hide them. It's a natural part of mankind. But a true follower of Jesus can come before the light of deep scrutiny from the Lord without being afraid of His wrath or anger because they know that He will cleanse them from any and all evil in their lives. After all, light will always dispel darkness. Nothing else but allowing His light full access to our lives will bring the end result that God really wants for our lives and our walks with God. The life of a saint that is truly surrendered to God in every area of their lives is something truly powerful. And they are able to be powerfully used of God in return. Ephesians 5 and verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. When we walk in the Spirit and not in our flesh, the fruit is goodness, righteousness and truth. Goodness here refers to moral purity as opposed to what Paul's just been warning the Ephesians about. Righteousness here refers to right character. A person's principles must be right if their actions are going to be right. This is a natural flow and effect from the light touching our lives. And God's light shining into our lives will always produce truth, because God is truth. Ephesians 5 and verse 10, Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. The Lord already knows what is acceptable unto Him. It's not up to us to try to prove that something that we want to do is actually good in His sight, even if all the signs are to the contrary. That's just how we fall flat on our faces. It's not our place to try to force our wills upon God or to try to change His mind. We are not God, so we should not try to be God. What we need to do is diligently seek God to make sure that our lives, our actions, our motives line up with what is acceptable unto the Lord. We need to prove for ourselves and prove within ourselves that we need to walk in ways that are acceptable and pleasing in His sight. That's how we prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. Visions 5 and verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. We are in this world, but not of this world. When people sin, Whether in the world or even in the church, we should not join with them in their sin. We should also never encourage them in their sin. And we should not silently approve of their sin, nor agree with their sin. Romans one thirty-two says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. There should not be a pleasure in what people are doing that is sin either because that is sin itself. We should show the light that God has shined into our hearts. The reproof shouldn't come so much from our mouths, but from our lives being a godly example to the sinner. Because when we don't partake with them in their deeds, we are sending a witness to them that we don't hold to the same standards or agree with them with what they are doing. And that alone can start to convict the sinner of their wrong to make them feel uncomfortable about what they are doing. There's nothing that makes a person feel like they're doing the right thing than have having someone else doing the same thing as well. It encourages in the same activity. If a person in the church sins, then the pastor needs to know about it. Don't ever make excuses for their sin or approve of their sin. And definitely don't join with them in their sin. That doesn't help anybody and only causes more problems. You might think that being with them in the sin might help them bring them out of the sin, but that's not the case. Um, It will only get you (laughs) entangled as well and, uh, and not help anybody. Just let the pastor know, because the pastor will approach the situation from a perspective of love. Because there are ways of reproving that will have the desired effect of getting the person to reconsider their course of action and their motives. And conversely, there are ways of reproving that will destroy the person involved. We should never be judgmental of a person that has sinned in the church. We must always come from a perspective of love and understanding that we are all flesh and that nobody is perfect. No, not even you. (laughs) You might be perfect in this area, but there are many other areas that you struggle with and aren't anywhere near close to perfect in. I know that is true because we are all humans, imperfect, born into sin, but saved by grace. It is only from this platform that we can encourage others to walk in righteousness. If you can't encourage someone to live in righteousness without being harsh and judgmental regarding their failures, then don't even bother trying. You will have the opposite effect on them than what you're intending. But if we can lift each other up in love and understanding then we can encourage each other to walk in righteousness and holiness before the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 12. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Even to mention certain evil deeds brings shame to the person telling them. And if you are frequently talking about the evil actions of the ungodly, particularly if you go into details, then you are actually advertising these things rather than reproving them. This verse isn't talking about speaking or preaching against these things being a shame, but rather going into sordid details of their wickedness. That is what brings the shame. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 13. And this is the last verse for this morning. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. When we allow ourselves to walk in the light of God's grace and allow Him to shine His light into every part of our lives, we become true lights and true reflections of Jesus' light ourselves. When we walk in the light of the Spirit, the light of our sanctified walk with God will start to shine on the darkness in other people's lives as well. Without you even saying a word, Sinners will start to feel uncomfortable saying certain words or talking about certain things in your presence. The light of Jesus Christ will shine through you as a vessel and start to convict the sinner of their own sinful deeds. It will bring the sinner to make a decision on whether to repent or not. As long as sinful actions remain hidden, the sinner remains a captive. But a godly life becomes light for others to find their way to the cross of Jesus Christ and be delivered from their sins and their sinful lifestyles. If I could get someone to the piano, please. I'm wondering how much both you and me have allowed the light of Jesus to permeate every part of our lives. Are there still places that are locked up, sealed from the light, places in our hearts that we refuse to allow Jesus to shine his light on? Do we still struggle from day to day with freedom from sin? A true walk with God in true peace and true and complete power over sin and our flesh can only come when we have completely surrendered all of ourselves to him. It can't work in any other way. Otherwise, our flesh will rise up and gain dominance over our lives. And that's not what Jesus has called us to. If you've heard this message and you realize that your walk with God is not as good and as transparent as it should be, I invite you to come to the front of church and pray a prayer of surrender. The only thing that we need is for the light of Jesus to shine into every part of our hearts because that's what will change our hearts, our desires, our victory over our flesh and what it wants to do. But there are the areas that we refuse to let him have access to. And that's why there is still such a struggle and even defeat in our lives. Now is the time to surrender all. Nothing is worth holding back from God, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. God will shine his light into that area and replace any bad thing with something good and something that's way better. God doesn't ever shortchange us. And God will enhance any good thing that we might be holding back from Him for any unknown or silly reason. Once His light shines on that part of our lives, He makes the good even better. It can only be a win-win situation, but we as humans sometimes want to hold on to the silliest things. Jesus' light wants to heal and take away any hurt in our lives. So don't hold them back from Him either. Yes. Yes. He does understand the hurt even if nobody else does or ever could holding on to that part of your life and refusing jesus access doesn't make sense because anyone who has been through the healing process talks of the release of pain hurt and anger and the peace of freedom from hate bitterness and despair even joy returns to their hearts again But I understand that we as humans can want to hold on to that hurt, which doesn't make it easy to let it go. But if you can make a decision today to want to let it go, then Jesus can start that process of healing, of that which you keep hidden so deep inside. Just come and pray and allow Jesus to shine his light into every part of your heart and your life. I invite everybody to come and surrender all to him.